A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Christ is risen. Welcome to episode two of A Light to the Nations. I'm your host, Father Fred Shaheen. This is being recorded just a few weeks after Pascha, in which we celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead, as proclaimed in the pages of the New Testament. It's good to remember that the news of Jesus' resurrection comes to us not as something we ourselves have experienced firsthand, but as literature, as preached by Paul in his epistles, and as told in the narratives in the four Gospels. Our acceptance of it is based solely on our hearing and receiving the story as it is told, and any benefits of the resurrection to believers will only be experienced when Jesus, the crucified one, returns in glory at the end. This teaching runs throughout Paul and in all four Gospels and is pushed to the extreme in Mark particularly in an early manuscript of his gospel that seems to end abruptly. Given how critical the gospel narrative is to our understanding and acceptance of Jesus' resurrection, it is important exactly how the story is told, what is said, and what is left out. In the liturgical practice of the Orthodox Church, it is Mark's account of Jesus' resurrection that is read at midnight on Pascha, and it goes like this. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee, there you will see him as he told you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. In the earliest, most reliable manuscripts of Mark, which is generally thought to be the first of the four Gospels written, this is how the story ends. Verse 8 concludes the entire narrative, with the women being told the news of Jesus' resurrection, but then doing nothing about it because they were afraid. Other manuscripts of Mark add verses 9 through 20, in which Jesus appears to his disciples, gives them instructions, and ascends into heaven. Manuscripts that contain the additional material, often referred to as the longer ending of Mark, are believed to be later productions. What's interesting is that verses 9 through 20 seem to collect bits of material from the Gospels that were later than Mark, Luke, Matthew, and John. Uh, 
making Mark's narrative conform to the ones in the other Gospels, in that it depicts Jesus appearing to his disciples after his resurrection. In the earlier version, we don't hear of any post-resurrection appearance. Before we go further, I want to be clear about something. There is no question that verses 9 through 20 are part of the scriptural canon as we have received it. There is nothing to suggest that they are spurious additions. We also have the witness of the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John that all speak of Jesus appearing to his disciples after his resurrection. However, knowing that an early manuscript of the first written gospel ends abruptly makes us wonder, what would it be like for us if the gospel simply told us that Jesus had been raised from the dead, but didn't present him to us in the story after his resurrection? The absence of a post-resurrection appearance in the shorter manuscript of Mark is quite frankly alarming And I say that fully aware of the warning given by the gospel itself, telling the women not to be alarmed. But it's hard not to be, that the story would leave the hearer with little more than an empty tomb and news of Jesus' resurrection is something we don't want to accept. Where is the reassurance of seeing the Lord standing upright and talking with him? We don't get that here. It's just the report of a vision followed by words a proclamation, then a commandment. As a hearer, this doesn't feel like enough to go on. And whatever seems to be lacking isn't helped by the response of the women. They don't follow the instructions they are given. They simply run away and do nothing, out of fear. One easy solution is to discredit or outright dismiss the shorter ending. As we said, the longer ending is part of the New Testament canon. Verses 9 through 20 even make up the third reading in the cycle of what is called in Greek Eothenian Gospels, specifically narratives of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. And these are read on Sundays in the Orthodox Church at Orthros. We could ask, why should we be interested in an early manuscript when the scriptural canon provides the longer ending that gives us that little bit of reassurance we seek? Just say it doesn't matter, ultimately. But what I find interesting is the shorter ending leaves us without any reassurance other than the words of the messenger. And this glaring omission in the story is consistent with the Gospel of Mark as a whole. Like the characters in the story, we don't get to behold the risen Lord, worship at his feet, touch the print of the nails, or sit at table and share a meal with him. And that might just be the point of the shorter ending. Like the women in the narrative, whether we as hearers choose to believe or not must be based solely on what we are told. The author of Mark may have had in mind to leave his hearers with a sense of emptiness and wonder that they have no choice but to accept or reject the words of the proclamation at the empty tomb. Such an approach would be consistent with his gospel as a whole. Consider these following observations. The gospel of Mark begins in the wilderness with the preaching of John, and Jesus' public ministry also begins in the wilderness, that of the Galilee of the Gentiles. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, Mark chapter 1, verse 9. 
And that same Galilee is where Jesus is going at the end of the gospel. There you will see him as he told you. At the end of the story, following his resurrection, Jesus is on the move. He is not staying put in Jerusalem, Capernaum, Nazareth, or any other city. And anyone who wants to see him must go where he is, in the wilderness among the Gentiles, offering them the same teaching that had been offered to and was refused by Israel. So in the shorter version of Mark, it's as if the author is saying, if you want to encounter the risen Lord, just go back to the beginning of this gospel. Additionally, consider another important feature of Mark's gospel. Only in the first verse of Mark is Jesus called the Son of God, and it is by the narrator. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. According to the author of Mark, Jesus' designation as the Son of God is based on his being the fulfillment of Scripture. And he cites verses from Isaiah and Malachi, which speak of John, the one who comes before God's anointed, his Christ, to prepare the way for him. In the story, God the Father calls him son twice, once at his baptism in the Jordan and again on Mount Tabor when Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John. Also, the demons in chapter 5 recognize Jesus as the son of God and address him as such. But no human being calls Jesus son of God till the centurion in chapter 15 who sees him cry out and breathe his last as he is hanging on the cross. This is stunning. Jesus' designation as both Christ and Son of God is connected to his going to the cross in complete obedience to the will of his Father. As the Christ, Jesus is the fulfillment of the suffering servant of Isaiah, of whom it is written, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So intrinsically connected is Jesus to the suffering servant of Isaiah that you can't even call him Christ if you stand in the way of his humiliation, which for him is the cross. Significantly, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ is not affirmed by Jesus. Rather, his response is to charge Peter and the others that they should tell no one about him. Thus far in the story, the disciples have shown that they lack any true understanding of what it means to call him the Christ or the Son of God. So Jesus orders them to be quiet about it. In a demonstration of their lack of understanding, when Jesus tells them what is going to happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem, When he essentially interprets Isaiah for them, Peter rebukes Jesus. In the story, Peter stands in the way of the cross and is in turn himself rebuked by the Lord, who tells him, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Immediately following this harsh rebuke, Jesus begins teaching, and the text is clear that this teaching is meant for more than only Peter. When he had called the people to himself, with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's Mark chapter 8, verse 34. To be a disciple of Jesus the Christ, one must go where he goes, and that means not only into Galilee, but the way of persecution and death. The way of the cross is so central to Mark that one is left with the sense that the last image you may have of Jesus before his coming in glory is of him hanging dead on the cross. So the fact that the only human character to confess Jesus as the Son of God is the centurion, who significantly is a Gentile and even a Roman soldier, and that he does so only after seeing him dead on the cross is no small detail in the story and certainly not simply a coincidence. We learn about the centrality of the cross from Paul. In 1 Corinthians, Paul exhorts members of the church at Corinth to be in unity with one another and warns them against behavior that is boastful and presumptuous. Such behavior stems from a misunderstanding of their relationship to God, one that is opposed to the wisdom and power which are specifically revealed in the word of the cross. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 25. And then in the next chapter, he says that God's wisdom is something that none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. A little later, he takes a sarcastic tone to show the Corinthians the folly of their attitude. You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. In chapter 11, he offers them this corrective. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Believers are to imitate the crucified Christ and not to presume that they are already recipients of the glory of his resurrection. This same teaching is what is expressed in the shorter version of Mark with its abrupt and hard-to-accept ending. There, we don't even get the comfort of seeing the Lord or speaking with him, so we cannot feel proud or boastful or presume that we are already reigning. Rather, we are left with only words, a proclamation of his resurrection and the commandment to go tell others about it and to meet him where he is going. Until his coming, Jesus is to remain the Lord of glory, crucified. Again, in Mark, we go from Jesus' death on the cross to his coming in glory with little or nothing happening in between. That's how the narrative moves, and as we have said, it moves that way intentionally. We might think we are being cheated out of something because of its lacking an account of Jesus' appearing before his ascension. But the value of going from crucifixion to return is that it keeps the hearers grounded on what is expected of them. Again, in a connection to 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks abundantly about the cross and how our submission to it through baptism controls the way we act. Significantly, he postpones any discussion of the resurrection till chapter 15 of that book. And this is on purpose, since there is little to teach about resurrection other than de facto accepting it, but there is much to teach about how to conduct oneself in the world now as a slave of Jesus, the Christ, 
who was both crucified in submission to the will of God and who will come again, as he himself says in Mark 8, 39, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We see then in Mark's gospel that Jesus' death on the cross is the preamble to his return in glory. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. As hearers, the shorter, abrupt ending of Mark, we might say, forces us to put the focus on where it needs to be and not get puffed up and imagine that we are something we are not. And while verse 8 ends the shorter manuscript of the gospel, in the church it is the beginning of our acceptance of the news and our subsequent proclamation of it, since it is the passage we hear first on the Feast of Pascha. You could almost make the claim that based on this prominent place in the lectionary at Pascha, the shorter ending of Mark is totally sufficient and lacks nothing. Finally, I'd like to share a personal anecdote with my hearers. On my first Pascha at the parish, I chose the gospel book to take outside for the rush service based on its size. It was smaller than the one we kept on the altar table. Although I had marked the text in the book, I didn't read it ahead of time. It was only after I had finished chanting it out loud that I realized the book contained a shortened version of even the usual resurrection gospel from Mark. It ended at verse 5. And going in, they saw a young man dressed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were amazed. And that was the end. It was only after the choir had responded with glory to thee, O Lord, and the service continued on, that I realized the text had been cut short. I'm not sure if this was a typo or an editing mistake, but it was too late. I felt cheated and disappointed. I didn't even get a chance to proclaim he is risen in the gospel. I learned a valuable lesson from that incident. Always read the text ahead of settling on which book to read from out loud. Also, this issue of wondering how much reassurance we need to be able to accept the teaching resonates a bit more with me now. If we can't ourselves see the risen Lord, at least we can have the comfort of hearing about others getting to see him. And if not even that is granted, we have the words of the messenger to the women, a proclamation and a command. As Jesus himself tells the apostle Thomas, do not be faithless, but believing. And blessed is he who has not seen and yet believes. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of A Light to the Nations, and I look forward to meeting again soon. Until then, may we be blessed. Christ is risen.